the press is grabbing a hold of is the idea that your name is getting shared with advertisers. And while we could sit here and debate whether that's a good practice or a bad practice or whether or not it violates Facebook's or MySpace's or whomever's privacy policy and promises to their users, at the end, when you get it all done, there's really nothing terribly private that's being shared. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from Massachusetts. We're glad you could join us today. And I'm Craig Williams from a rain-drenched Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. I have a book out called How to Get Sued. And Bob, we'd like to thank our sponsors, SunTrust, who offers private wealth management solutions for attorneys and legal firms at suntrust.com slash law, and Clio, a web-based practice management software program at goclio.com. Bob, I know you write some blogs. You got to well, talk about your blogs, uh, Bob. I do. I, well, I write a blog called uh, Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. Uh, and I do a podcast and, as well. And you, you also tweet, don't you? <laughs> and I tweet. Um, well, Craig, uh, a Wall Street Journal investigation uh, recently uncovered the fact that many of your favorite, uh, not my favorite necessarily, but many fa- of your favorite Facebook applications such as Farmville, Texas Hold'em Poker, and Frontierville are – allegedly sharing users' personal information with third-party advertisers and internet tracking companies. According to the report published in the Wall Street Journal, Facebook's top 10 apps were found sharing information that could impact millions of Facebook users. Well, yeah, they may be uh, some of our listeners' favorite Facebook applications or some uh, certainly people in the country because there's a lot of users, but... um, In response to this controversy, Mike Vernal, who's a member of Facebook's platform engineering team, said, we take user privacy seriously. We are dedicated to protecting private user data while letting users enjoy rich experiences with their friends. This more social web will only occur if users trust that they are in control of their information. And Vernal went on to stress that press reports exaggerated the implications of sharing a UID, which is a user identification, and encouraged users to review Facebook's policy and the use of user information, including UIDs. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take a look at the impact of this Facebook privacy breach, the legal issues, what Facebook needs to do to protect their users' privacy, and how this breach could impact the business, and it is a business, of Facebook. Helping us do that today are two guests. Uh, First of all, I'd like to welcome to the program Kimberly Isbell. Kimberly is a fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard University. Prior to joining the Berkman Center, she was an associate at law firms in Washington, D.C. and Richmond, Virginia. While in private practice, Kimberly specialized in many aspects of domestic and international intellectual property and technology counseling, prosecution and litigation, with an emphasis on IP, technology, internet, and e-commerce licenses and agreements. 
Kimberly is the former chair of the American Bar Association Intellectual Property Sections Committee 205, Trade Identity uh, and Unfair Competition. Uh, and uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Kim Isbell. Thank you. And Bob, our next guest is Mark G. McCreary from the firm of Fox Rothschild LLP. Mark focuses a segment of his practice on compliance with privacy-related laws, rules, and regulations, both domestic and international, as well as responses in the event of a data breach. Mark also practices IP law and the law of the Internet. He prosecutes various intellectual property matters, negotiates transactions, and provides counsel on a wide range of technology-related matters. Mark is also an author of the firm's Privacy Compliance and Data Security blog. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Mark. Thank you very much. Well, Mark, maybe you could uh, give us a kind of an outline first of what uh, the issues are in terms of this uh, privacy breach and what Facebook is perhaps doing about it and what users see as the real root of the problem. Well, I found yesterday when I had people come into my office and say, did you see the Wall Street Journal article? Facebook's at it again. And that's normally what I get. It's usually the, what's Facebook's problem? How do they keep coming up with ways to, to take my information and use it? And then I would explain to people, it's really a number that gets disclosed in a link or through an application, and then someone has to go and match it up with your username, and it's all publicly available information. There's no financial information. Your address isn't getting stuck in there unless you opt in to share that publicly. And about that time, people started to turn around and leave my office like, ah. So I don't know if that's a sign of the times of what's changing or if people read the article and probably like the authors intended, got all fired up about, oh, we found them. They really did it this time. They shared your information with advertisers. But just as a segue into it, I found people, in my experience, not that upset about it once they understood what was going on. So like you said, it probably makes sense to start with what exactly we're dealing with. And the best I can tell, and it's just based on reporting and based on Facebook's response and the uh, trustee certification uh, agency's response, it sounds like when there's a refer, a refer, which is when you leave the website to go to an advertiser's website or when you use the application at, at issue, that your user ID number, for lack of a better way to explain it, they call it uh, the, the UID, but it's basically a number that associates with your account, is sometimes referred over to the advertiser. And they say that is a violation of Facebook's policy, that they don't intend for that to happen, and they have promised their users that it won't. Uh, I can't see in the privacy policy that there's a clear answer of whether they violated their duties and promises to their users because it appears in the section of the privacy policy dealing with applications that they said they're going to do that. And when it deals in the section of the privacy with advertisers, it says they generally won't. So I I think that's what the concern is, is that it's yet another way for these data aggregators, data warehouse institutions that gather information, collect it all up, make profiles on us, to have another source of information of who we are. And that's what the uproar seems to be, whether people understand that to be the true uproar or not. Well, and, and there have been some out there who've, who've already said, uh, you know, what's the big deal here? I think Jeff Jarvis was one uh, uh, most prominently who, who kind of said, what's what's the big deal here? I, but, but not everybody sees it that way. I, I, I know there's already been at least one class action lawsuit filed 
in San Francisco over this uh, against Zynga, the company that that uh, produces a number of these applications. Uh, Kim, uh, how about you? What's your perspective uh, on this? Uh, is it a big deal or not? I think it's a big deal, but not for the reasons that people are making it out to be. Um, I think one thing that has gotten lost in the Wall Street Journal's coverage is the fact that this is, in some ways, a feature of the way browsers work on the Internet. And it's potentially an issue not just for Facebook, but for any social networking site that uses unique identifiers for their members. Um, anytime, you know, I think Forbes pointed out that MySpace, which is owned by the same parent company as the Wall Street Journal, also has this issue. And so I think it's not a problem so much for Facebook or for any of the individual websites, but it's a problem once this information gets into the hands of some of these data aggregators, because the databases and the amount of information that these data collectors can then pull together on an individual and then associate it with their name can in some cases be quite extensive and quite sensitive. You know, they could know that you were searching for um, particular medical treatments or, um, you know, what type of cars you were looking for on the Internet or other things. And if they can associate that with your identity, then not only does it become easier to target you for ads, but there have been some discussions that perhaps these databases might be for sale for other reasons, such as as part of a background check for whether or not you should be employed. And perhaps this aggregated information could be used to discriminate in some situations. And so I think the issue becomes really what type of oversight do we have on these data aggregators and, you know, what should we do about the industry? Well, Mark, there's been some investigation that claims that they've discovered that a data gathering firm, uh, Rapleaf, I believe it is, allegedly was able to link Facebook's user IDs to their database of Internet users and then ultimately sold it. Is that really the issue, the problem here? Well, I think, first of all, I think Kim makes an excellent point. I mean, if I'm a, a gay man and the sites that I visit or my interest on Facebook, which I only show to the people that I want to see it, but the applications that I use are more t uh, leaning toward that lifestyle, and that gets aggregated into this public profile that gets pulled together from hundreds of different sources, that, that's an easy way for my private life to get out there even though there's no private information being shared. So, I, Kim, I, I think that's an excellent point. I, I think the issue here is really about expectations and what we're going to consider private information. I mean, under any state law that you're dealing with privacy breaches or data breaches, what's going on here, from what I've seen, doesn't come close to qualifying as personal information. You may have a user, excuse me, you may be able to track down a first name, last name, but there's no financial information involved per se. There's no health information involved per se. Um, it, it seems to be that what the press is grabbing a hold of is the idea that your name is getting shared with advertisers. And while we could sit here and debate whether that's a good practice or a bad practice or whether or not it violates Facebooks or MySpaces or whomever's privacy policy and promises to their users, at the end, when you get it all done, 
there's really nothing terribly private that's being shared. Now, again, I'm not saying data aggregators are a good thing, and I'm not saying that it, it's the way to handle it uh, by having them exist and having the information out there. But I think the issue here is really to determine what information is going to be considered private before we have an institution like the Wall Street Journal screaming through their headlines that Facebook is is taking your private information and selling it to third parties. Is this a necessary evil of of being able to have uh, different applications online uh, interact with each other uh, in a way that's beneficial to a user? I mean, I know that there are protocols that are that are supposed to uh, allow different applications to work together uh, in a secure way, or at least without revealing, you know, uh, login and, and password, that kind of information. Uh, the the OAuth uh, protocol is one of those. Uh, but you know, here we're talking basically about a, a, a number, a single identifying number that that uh, is used to uh, to uh, identify a distinct user. Uh, can, can we have that kind of interaction between web applications without having this kind of uh, information being exchanged and available? I, I think we certainly can. I don't think anyone ever intended when they designed the refer ID protocol for this type of information to pass through. I think no one just ever thought of it. Certainly, there are any number of ways technologically that you could get around this so that um, the unique user identification number was not passed on to advertisers. Some ideas that have been mentioned are simply inserting a random character somewhere into the string um, that would not necessarily harm the way that the application interacts with the website. Um, certainly, at least two of the browsers available on the market today, Chrome and Firefox, make it possible for you to block this referring information from being passed on, although it's you know, several layers down in a fairly arcane setting um, and is certainly not clear or transparent to most users. Unfortunately, Internet Explorer and some of the others don't even offer that option. But it's not required to make the Internet work. Will we ever reach the point where there's been some type of uh, congressional or legislative mandated uh, centralized methodology for protecting privacy? In other words, there's there's a... a a place where we can all go to say, yeah, we either want to opt in and, or opt out of privacy, or is that just Pollyannish? I, I think it's Pollyannish. I mean, I think it'd be fantastic. I think it would be difficult to regulate, and frankly, it would probably have as much success as the do not call list have. Um, I, I think it'd be very difficult. I, we've been looking for years and had high hopes, at least I did, uh, with the Obama administration that it would be taken a little bit more seriously, whether it's on the data breach or the data protection side that there would be more legislation coming out. Um, but I, I think it's going to be difficult to ever see a situation where the government's going to get involved with regulating private companies and how they're going to treat uh, data besides financial or health data. Kim, what is it that, that Europe has done that has made privacy such an issue there that the Americans really don't quite understand? Well, I think in certain ways, Europe has a very different policy orientation towards privacy than the United States does. Um, you know, the United States is typically much more pro-free market and doesn't have some of the sort of social ideas and social regulations that Europe does. And this has become an issue. I mean, certainly 
any company that tries to do across-border transactions that involve the crossing or sending out of unique identifiers or personalized information have run into this issue. Um, trying to comply with the EU data directive is sometimes quite difficult for American companies to be able to show that they comply with it and can be trusted with the information. Mark or Kim, I don't know if either of you know this, but but what if you know what what kinds of constraints does Facebook uh, legal constraints, contractual constraints does does Facebook place on on the companies that that uh, that are allowed to uh, you know uh, create these application interfaces uh, within within Facebook? I mean, it seems that part of the issue here is not just that the companies were able to get this information, but that they were then uh, Reselling it essentially, or trans- transmitting it to third parties outside the, uh, uh, the the particular company that had developed the app. So, so does Facebook uh, place restraints on that kind of activity? Uh, they, they do. I mean, it's what happened uh, is technically in violation of Facebook's terms with their advertisers and their application makers. Uh, you think they would have learned this lesson? And what I think the real issue is, you think they would have learned this lesson back in May? when they realized the UIDs were going into their referring URLs, um, but they apparently didn't. And we had the same issue here now, only it's on the application side. And, you know, being the cynic that I am, I'm immediately thinking, nobody asked this question. Nobody thought, oh, you know what? We're, we're, we're transmitting UIDs this way. Maybe we should check everything else and see if we're transmitting it any other way. Uh, and maybe they just, you know, they're pushing the envelope. They have a CEO that's come out and said privacy's dead, and they're going to make money until the Wall Street Journal writes an article and they, they enforce and police their application makers a little bit more. So I think the real question is, why do they have to get this information at all? And I think, you know, we've had a very good answer um, already on that when Kim addressed that it's part of the technology but it's more now, will Facebook go back and police and, and really stop their application makers from doing this? Because i, I got to think that Facebook knew what Ragleaf was doing. I mean, they're, they're no dummies. They know what Ragleaf does for a business model and that this information can ultimately get to them. What's the remedy here? I mean, how, how is it that um, we get this stopped or that people express their opinions? Is there any type of... Uh, remedy other than a market remedy and people, you know, closing their Facebook accounts to, to resolve this problem? What kind of control do users have other than just simply voting with their feet? I think certainly I would expect some of the state attorney generals to have something to say about what's been going on. Um, I would expect to hear something out of, you know, California and some of the other states probably soon once they've had a chance to look into this. I don't think it's a situation in which the users have absolutely no recourse. But obviously, you know, if it is something that's important to them, the ultimate recourse is to vote with their feet and go to other platforms that take privacy more seriously. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if, there, as I say, I, I mentioned earlier, I, I saw just that this came across this morning, a, a press release saying that a class action was filed uh Against uh, Zynga, against it says, it says against its alleged practice of illegally sharing the Facebook user data of its consumers and advertisers and data with advertisers and data brokers. 
Uh, nothing in this press release says anything about the potential, what the legal grounds are yeah, uh, here or, or what the allegations are, but uh, it would be interesting to know that. And I haven't had a chance to look up uh, the complaint and see what it says. Mark, do you have any thoughts on that? I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt before. I was going to say, what's the harm? Uh, I'm not saying, again, I, I, I feel like I'm defending the uh, <laughs> the brokers, and I don't mean to. It's just, if you're going to have a situation like this, you probably have a clear breach of contract, but what's the harm? What's the damage? I mean, we've seen, it's been a mix of cases, but it, they're all starting to come down now on the side. If you have a data breach and you have no actual identity theft, you have no harm. This is somewhat analogous. I mean, there was a breach of contract that somebody told you they wouldn't do something with your information, and they did it, but what's the harm? It's a good question. Kim, do you do you see any harm here? I mean, as I mentioned before, I have concerns with the data collection industry as a whole and how they're going to be allowed to continue their collection efforts. Um, you know, currently we have on the books laws that require the credit reporting agencies to make available to you the information that they have on you and to allow you to correct it. Currently, there is no easy mechanism for me to find out what Rape Leaf or any of these other entities may have on me, whether it's correct, correct or not, and what they're doing with it. Um, and I think once you give them the ability to connect real-world names and identities with these online profiles, you potentially have some threats of real harm. Now, looking at any one person in the chain, no, the information from Facebook in and of itself is probably not harmful. But when collected into a larger database with information on my browsing habits, where I shop, how I spend my money, what websites I look at, look at, I think there is a potential for harm there. And I think it's something that we as a society need to think seriously about and decide how we want to deal with this industry. So, Mark, are, do you think that users are really unaware of how their information is being used, or do you think that they're being proactive and, and largely, you know, using anonymous uh, information when they log on to sites? Are they doing things to protect themselves, or uh, what do people do to resolve these issues? Well, I think absolutely across the board, people are unaware of how much the information is being used, in what ways, and by whom. Um, I think that if people feel that they've done Stuff. They've taken steps to protect themselves online. It's under the adage of, if I don't want my coworkers or parents to see it, I won't post it. But otherwise, there's not much thought given to it. And uh, uh, an antidote for that is there was some discussion, I guess it was about a year ago, but when the European Union came out and decided that IP addresses of users would be considered personal information, that it would be just like your social security number, essentially, most United States people that we heard of this were like, what? Are you crazy? Why would you do that? And it, it's for the reasons that, you know, Kim is explaining, that you really want to know where that information is going. You want to have some control over it. And you don't want these anonymous third-party aggregators, any of which could disappear overnight, to suddenly have this information and use it for very potentially nefarious purposes. It's time for us to take a short break uh, in the program. We'll be back in just a few more in a few moments to talk more about uh, Facebook and privacy.
Has the recent economic climate affected the financial goals of your firm? Get back on track with help from SunTrust. Our private wealth management legal specialty group works solely with lawyers and their firms to deliver unique solutions designed for the legal community. SunTrust advisors give you sound guidance on everything from maximizing cash flow and waiting through benefits planning to understanding how to retain attorneys and staff. Learn more at www.suntrust.com legal. SunTrust. Live solid. Bank solid. SunTrust Bank. Member FDIC. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Engage your brain. Keep up with the fast pace of the legal profession. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and listen to all of our great legal podcasts. They're free. Someone's at the door. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to westlegaledcenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. Perfect. I'll do that right now. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're joined by Kimberly Isbell, a fellow at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society, and Mark G. McCreary from the firm of Fox Rothschild LLP. We're talking about Facebook's uh, alleged privacy breach and what's being done about it. Um, Mark and Kim, is this a problem for all social media sites, or is it just a situation that we're seeing with Facebook? I think it's certainly potentially a problem for all social media sites that aren't um, aware of or don't crack down on the technological protocol that does provide this information. I agree. I think it's it's a problem for any social media site that doesn't take care in their coding and you know makes this information available uh, likely unnecessarily to its advertisers or its application makers. Do we really have a, a dichotomy in society here? I mean, we we've kind of. Uh, kind of danced around the issue that some users don't really care about their private information. Some do. Is it really a generational issue? Is it that, you know, my kids who are on the, on the internet really don't care if anybody finds their, their private information. And this is a situation that really is only something that adults care about. Well, it's funny. Uh, it, it, you're actually seeing studies now that are the opposite, that you'll have teenagers that are more cognizant and aware of what's going on with their private information and shared only selectively than a 45- or 50-year-old individual that doesn't care as much or at the very least doesn't give it enough thought. I mean, they they may have 10 times more outrage when they read stories like what the Wall Street Journal did, but generally speaking, in motion, they're not thinking about it nearly as much. And I think there's also a difference in the types of information that younger generations care about versus older generations. I think it's not that they don't care. It's just that certain information they consider less 
private than maybe their parents did, whereas other information they very much do care about keeping private. We've been talking a lot about the the legal issues here, and, and uh, you know we've raised the question of whether there's a remedy, at least uh, legally, for for what's going on, or if if there's even been harm uh, in terms of legal terms. But uh, is is there a takeaway in this for consumers generally in terms of uh, a lesson to be applied in how they use Facebook and in how they've uh, you know managed their privacy settings? Uh, what advice, Mark, uh, would you give a, a consumer uh, uh, if there's a if there's a lesson to be learned from this latest story? Well, I think the best advice, at least in my opinion, is kind of an eyes wide open approach to it that. You're only going to put certain information on sites like this just as a general rule. But also to the extent that you don't want your name out there or you don't want to be a, your friends to be associated with you in some way for advertising purposes, there's always going to be a risk that that's going to happen. Whether it's a breach, whether a company gets sold and it is sold to a party that's not going to respect the privacy policies in place, um, th- there's always going to be that risk. So as long as you're willing to accept that what you post up there could someday become available, it's a wonderful thing to do. And then for, from there backwards, it's a matter of risk and how much you're willing to risk that not being the case. Kimberly, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, I certainly think that there are technological measures available for people who are extremely concerned about privacy. Certainly, there are browsing anonymizers like Tor and some other applications that make it much more difficult for websites or companies like Rapleaf to put tracking cookies on your machine and follow you across the internet. Um, There are things like that you can do. But I think what people need to realize is nothing on the internet is of necessity private. Um, There's an illusion out there that things are anonymous or private, but under the right circumstances, anything you do on the internet can ultimately be shared with others, either through subpoena or data breach. Will this mean we're no longer going to have to uh, bear with the news every time a friend of ours on Facebook gets a new cow or plants a new stock of corn on on Farmville? (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Darn. (laughs) Too bad. Well, you can go and block those applications, Bob, and it's something that I do because I just, although I'm on Facebook, I I don't, it's not something I enjoy seeing or reading about because I have no interest in it, but you can block those. They're relatively easy to go now and find the the application and then block it so you can avoid it. do that. So, Kim, really, it's it's just that if you're on the internet, you might as well just... um, you know, bear your soul because there's nothing you can do to protect your privacy? Is is that where we really come down on this? I think you need to be cognizant of what you put out there. Um, it's, it's sort of the old maxim, don't put anything in writing that you wouldn't want to show up on the front page of the New York Times. Um, this has always been what lawyers have advised their clients. And it's as true on the internet as it is in paper, and perhaps more so, because it's easier to get electronic records than hard copy records. Um, you know, for the people who really do care about their privacy, there are technological measures that you can take that give you a better chance of keeping your surfing habits or your internet habits private. But there's nothing out there that's 100%. 
We're just about at the end of our time for this show. And before we go, we want to give each of you an opportunity to share your closing thoughts. Uh, and uh, also, if you would like to let our listeners know how they can follow up with you, you're, you're uh, welcome to do that. We invite you to do that. Uh, so, uh, Kim, let's start with you. I think my closing thoughts are, you know, it's time for us as a society to start thinking seriously about these questions of Internet privacy um, databases that keep not only personally identifying information, but large amounts of behavioral information. And we need to decide as a society how we want this information made available and used. Um, if people want to follow up with me, they can always come to the Citizen Media Law Project website, which is sitmedialaw.org. Thank you very much. And Mark McCrary? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I absolutely echo uh, the thought that Kim has that we need to have serious thinkers and serious doers deciding how we're going to handle these issues. But in the meantime, I think there needs to be a sense of realism with this in that people are going out there and giving this information in exchange for free goods, for free services, and things that they wouldn't otherwise pay for. And there's going to be an interesting balance between me sharing that I like soccer versus me paying $5 a month to have access to a website. And I, I don't have any good answers for it. I mean, I, I am more interested in seeing what happens when the data gets loose in the wild. Um, I'm very interested to see what goes on with policy, but I don't have a lot of hopes for it. And I, you know, I wish people like Kim that are, that are in the front lines of this to find answers that are going to work, uh, and to have the attention of the public to get it done. Um, but it's going to be an uphill battle. And as far as reaching me, I think the, the blog we keep is probably the easiest way, which is uh, datapricy.foxrothschild.com. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Bob, that uh, pretty much wraps it up for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. For our listeners, remember you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at thelegaltalknetwork.com. And uh, we are, of course, uh, in the iTunes library and uh, on West Legal Ed Center now as well, where you can get CLE credit for listening to the program. Uh, and, uh, of course, a, a thanks, uh, as always, to uh, our producer, Kate Kenny, and our sound engineer Mike Hockman for their behind-the-scenes work on this program that makes it all happen, thanks to them. And as well to Scott Hess and Luann Reeve, the uh, owners of uh, Legal Talk Network and making the whole network possible. So we'll see you again next week, Bob. Uh, we'll be discussing another great legal topic. And when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks a lot. Talk to you next week. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. 
Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.